I'm always grateful to be uh, in this Sunday gathering we have here at Renaissance. Uh, last week, I was actually away on a family reunion in uh, Buffalo Junction, Virginia. It's a pretty country town. We have well water. Uh, and while I was there, it was actually one of the most rich times of my life. And one of the things that just really blew the doors off of uh, my understanding was I got the chance to interview and to talk with one of my oldest living relatives, Cousin George. Uh, he's 97 years old, and his brain is razor sharp. Uh, he's an amazing treasure in our family. Uh, interesting fact about Cousin George, uh, his dad was born a slave in 1858. And uh, being 97 years old, he has lived through a thing or two. Uh, he's experienced a thing or two, and one of the things that I was so um, just impressed on was just hearing his experience, particularly in light of all the things that are going on with Charlottesville and white supremacy marches and all of these things going on. And three things really stuck out about our time with Cousin George um, that I wanted to share with you guys. Number one is, to this very day, he still eats fried chicken made with lard. Not oil. So everybody who has watched the documentary, What the Health, and you're a vegan now, listen, Cousin George is still eating fried chicken with lard. I'm just going to drop that in there in the conversation. Uh, equally important as that, um, one of the things that he said over and over again was a comment that really hit me was, I said, Cousin George, how did you navigate living in the Jim Crow South during lynchings? during all of these crazy things, like, what was life like? Uh, and one of the things he said over and over and over again was, we, we were together. Uh, they didn't try to survive on their own. Uh, they survived as a unit. They came together. Now, oftentimes, when stuff happens nationally or whatever, uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't really have a lot of emotional energy to give to anybody. I don't have any strength to give, uh, and I need to borrow that from other people. Uh, and part of being a family member here at Renaissance is a great gift. And I'm so just won over by his determination for decades and decades to have lived through things, not by himself, but together. And family, if we are going to do anything, if we're going to do anything meaningful in this neighborhood, in this country, it's going to be together. I don't have the answers, but I do know it's going to be together. The last thing, yes, that's a great thing to celebrate. The last thing he said to, to, to us was um, that for a year in his life, uh, he was so angry that he said, I wanted to, I learned how to hate. And here's what he said. He says, I learned how to hate, but it was the most miserable year I ever had. When you hate, what actually happens is you're miserable and you want the whole world to join you in what you're doing. But it doesn't work that way. What we need is not to learn hatred. What we need to learn is love, and more specifically, the love of Jesus. So I am thrilled that today my good friend Mike Kelsey is going to be talking to us today about what the love of Jesus really is like. And I'm going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to invite him up. Uh, and when he comes up, just give him a crazy renaissance welcome uh, and pretend you're really excited to, to see him. John 13, it'll be on the TV screens. screens. Uh, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, 
knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Father, as we come together today for this word, I just pray that you would teach us what is your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Give it up for Mike, y'all. It's been a uh, <clears throat> tough week with everything that has um, just happened in Charlottesville. And uh, got to be honest, get my timer straight here. Um, here's how it impacted me. So I'm from the D.C. area. I'm a pastor in a pretty large church, fairly multicultural church, but still fits in the stream of what we might call white evangelicalism. It's kind of our church is kind of the poster church in the D.C. metro area for that. So Saturday night, uh, everything goes down, and when these incidents happen, this is the effect on me and my wife, and I'm just being totally honest, I did not want to go to my church. Just didn't. I'm super honest, and if you're new to Renaissance, I'm sorry you came today. This is super uncomfortable. <laughs> it's not always like this, I promise. Um, I just did not want to go to church and just be forced to have conversations with and try to like, I just didn't, I didn't honestly, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to go to Northeast, Northeast, not North with T, North with an F, Northeast DC, uh, to my dad's church. That's not just predominantly black, it's all black, 100% black. Like that's where I wanted to go. And then I think about passages like this. And I thought about the end of John 13 where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. I just felt challenged by God to say, in the midst of, of the difficulty you go back to your church with all of those white people and lots of other kinds of people as well, and you live this out for the world to see. And so what I want to talk about is when Jesus says he's not talking to individuals, he's talking to a community of people. He says, as I have loved you, as you have received and experienced my love, in that same way, I want you now to reflect that love I want you to love other people in that, in that way. Well, what does that love look like? What does it look like? That's what I want us to look at. Three things I want us to point out uh, just in the passage that Jordan read here. 
um, about the love of Jesus. Number one, that the love of Jesus is reliable. The love of Jesus is reliable. John sets the scene for us. Uh, He says this all happens right before the Passover feast. If you're kind of new to the Bible, the Passover feast was like a memorial meal, right? Our equivalent in New Covenant Christianity is what we're going to do today, the Lord's Supper. It's like this equivalent, uh, this memorial meal that for the Jews commemorates when um, the the children of Israel were free. They were delivered out of slavery in Egypt um, because the angel of death would pass over all the houses that had the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost. And so uh, this redemptive event in the history of the children of Israel, Passover uh, commemorates that. So this is right before the Passover meal. In fact, what Jesus is doing here, it's like a private kind of early Passover meal. It's, it's, it's the last supper where that was instituted on the Thursday night before the Friday when he's going to die on the cross. And secondly, Jesus knows that he's about to die. And so as you read throughout the Gospel of John, this marks, John 13, verse 1, marks a significant turning point in the life of the ministry of Jesus. Um, before this, he's constantly said, my hour has not yet come. It, has, it is not time yet for me to f- fulfill the purpose that I came to earth to fulfill, which is to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. He says, my time hasn't come yet. Well, now, John 13, 1, Jesus knows that his hour had come, verse 1 says, for him to depart out of this world to the Father. And so you have this Passover meal that celebrates redemption through blood sacrifice, and you have Jesus who knows that he's getting ready to go to the cross as the ultimate fulfillment of that memorial meal. He was going to become the lamb that was slain uh, so that people could be freed out of slavery to sin and, and Satan. And so it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having loved his own who were in the world, and then you got to circle this, highlight it on your phone, app, or whatever. It says, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He had loved them during his time with them, and he ultimately was about to express his love for them on the cross. And listen, he spent three years with these men, with these disciples, specifically these 12. He spent three years with them, eating with them, traveling with them, having conversation with them, weeping with them. Remember Lazarus, when he wept, he wept with these disciples. He lived up close and personal with them. And here's what that means. It means that he knew very intimately how sinful and flawed they were. If you, again, if you, you knew the Bible, you read throughout the Gospels, his disciples, they were constantly missing the mark, y'all. Like these dudes, they were power hungry. In fact, the immediate context of John 13, it, Luke and Mark tell us, right, is on the heels of this conversation Jesus has where, where uh, they, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do anything we ask you to do. And Jesus says, what do you want? Now, pause. They have an opportunity. Jesus says, what do you want? I can think of a thou ASAP on site. I would ha- I'll be ready. The one thing they say they want is prominence. They, they say they want to sit at the right hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They have selfish motives. At least one of his disciples harbored prejudice. He had prejudice against people who were considered low class in that day. Philip came and told Nathaniel that they had found the Messiah. And guess where the Messiah was from? He was from Nazareth. And so Nathaniel didn't believe him. Why? He says, because can anything good come from Nazareth? 
like, let's put this in context, y'all. This is Harlem, not, maybe not today Harlem. You know, this is like 1997 Harlem, you know what I mean? Where, where like, people in, in the financial district and other parts of Manhattan are kind of like, can anything good come out of Harlem? Like, this is the part of town in the first century here where people are like, yeah, yo, those, 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 can anything good, meaningful, powerful come out of that part of town? This is the type of prejudice that that's at least one of Jesus' disciples had in his heart. His disciples were constantly anxious. They struggled to trust Jesus, even though he had wa- they had watched him demonstrate his miraculous power over and over and over and over again. They still struggled to trust Jesus to the point where he constantly calls them, oh, you of little faith. Thomas struggled with doubt. He struggled to believe that Jesus was actually raised from the dead unless he could have empirical evidence. Y'all heard last week about Peter, right? That was, he was put on the spot in front of the crowd and Peter abandoned Jesus and denied that he even, when he was put, when he was pressured about his relationship with Jesus and he thought about what it might cost him, he acted like he didn't even know Jesus, this, this is the group of people that Jesus loved. They were a constant disappointment. They constantly let Jesus down. These were not first-round draft picks. This was, this was not the A team. Like, this is D-League disciples. You know what I'm saying? Like, some of y'all don't even know what D-League is. And I, have you ever, like, like, this is renaissance, y'all. Like, y'all look super, like, well put together, but y'all are a mess. I know that. The gospel tells me that. You know what I'm saying? Like, And so the question is, why did Jesus keep loving them? Why? Why did he love them to the end? It tells us right here in verse 1. It says, having loved who? Having loved his own. They were his own. And what's interesting, as you read through the Gospel of John, it says that he came to his own people ethnically and gave them, the Jewish people, and gave them the opportunity to become his own spiritually. He came to them proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, inviting them to be a part of the kingdom of God and be redeemed. And and the Jewish people, they rejected him. And so these men that are a part of his inner circle, his disciples, they are now his own. They are part of the spiritual family because they have received him by faith. These were his own. And so his love for them was not based on Their consistency, his love was based on his own covenant commitment to them as his own. Listen, question for you. When we think about the fact that the love of Jesus is reliable, what is your confidence in God's love based on? Do you really believe Jesus' love is reliable in your life? And if you do, what do you believe his love relies on? Because here's what I know about you, because it's true about me and all of us, right? That so often we're tempted to believe that God's love is dependent on my consistency. That God's love for me fluctuates based on my faithfulness to him. And listen, I went through the darkest spiritual time of my life in 2009. I was a pastor, y'all. I'm in ministry. I'm teaching. I'm preaching. I'm doing all of this. And I went through what people call like Spiritual depression, a dark night of the soul, a lot of ancient writers call it. I went through this time of my spiritual walk. It got so dark that I literally wondered, like out loud, I literally wondered, like, yo, am I even saved? Like, do I really even have, 
because I was struggling in that season of my life to really have confidence to feel the love of God and the presence of God. And I wasn't like living reckless out here. I wasn't doing nothing crazy. It's just, but here's what happened. I was, I was so overwhelmed and aware of how inconsistent I can be. It's January 1st, and I'm already a day late on my Bible reading plan. Do the math. Just do the math. I'm struggling, like I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm preaching and I'm this model for people of godliness, but I know how I just treated my wife last night. I know how much of a jerk I've been to my kids, and I'm struggling with patience, and I'm, and I'm overwhelmed by my inadequacy and by the fact that I've constantly fallen short of God's standards. And I started to sink into this deep spiritual depression where I was like, yo, do I even have a relationship with God? And it's because I was basing my confidence on God's love on my consistency. And so here's what I want you to hear. My daughter, I got a daughter, she's six, she's turning seven, August 30th. Every night I tell her I love her. Every night. But I don't just tell her I love her. Regularly I ask her this question, Ava, do you know why daddy loves you? Do you know why daddy loves you? And she always comes up with all of these reasons. I'm cute. I'm like, yes, you are. You're cute. All right. Because I got this good grade at school, because, because I obey. You know what I say to her? I said, no, no, it's not, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for all those things. It's none of those things. Here's why I love you, Ava. Because you're my daughter. Because you're my daughter. And the reason I want, I want to emphasize that is because there's going to come a day where she does something wrong or embarrassing or shameful, and in that moment, her confidence in my love is going to be based on something. And if she believes that I love her because of her success, then when she fails a test, or when she loses a game, she's going to wonder, does daddy still love me? And if she believes that my love for her is, is based on her good behavior, then one day when she is caught being disobedient, she's going to wonder, does, does, does daddy love me? So I want her to know now, and I want to remind her every opportunity I get that my love for her is based on something that will never change. She is my own. She didn't choose to be. She's not my own because of anything in her that could deserve it. She is, she is my own because I made it that way. And I've obligated my love to her forever. It will not fluctuate based on how much she deserves it or how much she's worthy of it. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that the love of Jesus is reliable. Romans 8, what, who, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul gives a long answer, basically saying nothing. Nothing. If your faith is in Jesus and what he has done for you, you are his own. And his love for you is now based on that not based on anything you could do. God wants us to know that his love is reliable. It's not based on anything intrinsically worthy in us. It is based on his own grace and his own commitment. And listen, he wants us to receive that love, and he wants us to reflect that kind of love, like not in theory, like in this community, Renaissance Church, in Harlem, like in your daily life, reflect that kind of reliable love to other people that says, I'm going to look you in your face, and I'm going to love you based on nothing that I see in you, 
but purely based on the fact that, man, we are one in Christ. Like, here's what I know about this community. Y'all got some, it's, it's different people in here, and it's difficult people in here. It's people that is going to make it extraordinarily challenging for you to love them. For lots of reasons. Charlottesville kind of reasons, maybe? Or just everyday kind of reasons. The love of Jesus is reliable. He wants us to reflect that love. Second thing we learn, I got to move faster. Second thing we learn is the love of Jesus is humble. The love of Jesus is humble. Verse 1, John tells us that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Verses 2 through 5, Jesus demonstrates what, kind of that, what that kind of love looks like. He washes the disciples' feet. Now, he did this knowing three things. Verse 3, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, meaning he knew he had authority over everything. Two, he knew that he had come from God. That basically meant he's God. John, earlier John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, he's talking about Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He knew he came from God and was going back to God. So Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he is God. He is divine. He knows that he has all this authority. And the third thing he knows is that Judas is about to betray him. Judas is about to betray him. And y'all, like, Hebrew says Jesus upholds everything by the word of his power. Everything that exists, he upholds it by the word of his power. That means Judas is only alive because Jesus hasn't said, die, dog. You know what I'm saying? Like, and yo, I'm super petty. I'm super petty. Like, I would have just... I would have just thought it. Like, no incriminating evidence. He would have just choked on the last supper. It would have been a wrap. It would have been over. I'm just super petty like that. And Jesus knows he has all authority. He sustains life. Judas is about to betray him, and look at what he does. It says, with all of this, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel He tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Listen, some of y'all know the story. Rabbis don't do this. Like, it was, this is, it's social etiquette. When you came to somebody's house during that time, like, they didn't have paved roads. They didn't have closed-toed shoes. This is dusty, crusty feet. You know what I'm saying? Some of y'all got that, and you do have. You should be wearing steel toe boots, and you still got dusty, crusty feet. You know, back then, like that. So you came into somebody's house, and it was customary. There's a basin of water right there. The host, it was too demeaning of a task for the host to even wash your feet. And so you would have a servant, a slave. It, in Jewish law, it couldn't even be one of your Jewish servants. That's reserved only for Gentiles who they would get to come and wash your feet. And so none of the disciples did that for each other. And so Jesus gets up from this meal. The, the disciples are wondering, Jesus, what in the world? Like, Jesus got ADD. Like, he's always like, where are you going, dog? What are you doing? And he gets this basin. And he takes it off his, his robe. And he gets down on his knees. And he takes these men, their, their feet, in his hand. And he begins to wash their feet. He begins to wash the feet of men he created. He begins to wash the feet of a man who's getting ready to sell him out and betray him. He's getting ready to wash his feet for a man who's getting ready 
to signal the crowd that has the torches, that's getting ready to come and execute him. And he humbles himself and washes their feet. And listen, some of us have a hard time seeing God this way. That God, who's this absolute authority and power, that he is this kind of humble, near, close, loving God. But this is how Jesus lived, right? He's born, he, he reveals himself first, not to kings, but to shepherds. He cared for the people in society who had little value in that society. Children and women and, and the sick. And he calls us to be characterized by that kind of humble love. Now, here's where it gets to you and, and to me. Here's how most of us live. Here's how most of us live. Financially, right? We live this way. Like in our minds, our standard of living should constantly increase as our purchasing power increases. In other words, the more money I have, the more luxury I should have. We live that way in all areas of our life. The more time I have, the more freedom I have to to indulge myself and to live how I want to live. The more power we have, the more we demand that people serve us. This is how we live our life, right? The more resources we have, the more power we have, the more prominence and access we have, the, the more leverage we have to indulge ourselves. That's how all of us live. That's how society trains us to live. And what Jesus does with all of his power and his privilege and his prominence is he wraps a freaking towel around his waist. And he demeans himself and deprives himself in order to serve the needs of not just his disciples, but of one that was going to betray him. Listen, in a self-absorbed world, true love makes no sense at all. It makes no sense that you would make more money only to give it away. It makes no, no sense that you would have more time and use it to serve other people. It makes no sense that you would, instead of using your power to make people serve you, that you would use your power, your position, to leverage that to serve other people who don't have access to that power. That makes no sense in a self-absorbed world. But this is a love that is willing to deprive myself and inconvenience myself in order to prioritize the needs of others. The love of Jesus is humble. It is humble. And listen, I think about this when I think about this Charlottesville thing. And there are so many people that are like so shocked that white supremacy is still a thing. And here's why I think people are shocked. Now, listen, it is shocking to see a car ram into this crowd and kill this woman. It is shocking. It has a visceral impact on me to see this sea of people carrying these tiki torches. What's not shocking to me is that white supremacy exists. And here's why it's shocking to so many people. What people don't understand is that white supremacy in this country has never been propped up. It has never been torches and white hoods that has propped up white supremacy. White supremacy has never thrived because of vicious hatred. It has thrived because of self-preservation. It has thrived because of selfishness. White supremacy in this country has thrived because of people who constantly have chosen to secure their own privilege and prosperity at the expense of other people who don't have the same privileges and access to the same power. 
Let me give you one just quick illustration, right? So George Whitfield, legendary preacher, one of the pillars of evangelicalism coming out of Europe and, and in North America. Pillars. Lots of great things to say, lots of great things to teach. He's legendary. And he, he advocated for slavery. Now, here's what you got to understand. It wasn't vicious hatred. He actually rode around on horseback, like telling slave owners, you shouldn't treat your slaves this way. So it wasn't vicious hatred that he had. Here's why he advocated for slavery. And you see this in writing, in his actual sermons. In Georgia, he advocated for slavery. This was why. He said, because if we don't use slave labor, it will cause the economy of Georgia to collapse. We need slave labor in order for our economy, in order for our standard of living to be able to be maintained. It wasn't vicious hatred that supported, that that made white supremacy thrive. It was self-preservation. It was me living a life that makes choices to secure my own power and privilege and prosperity at the expense, even when it disadvantages other people. But the love of Jesus it hum- is humble. It flips that. It says, even if it causes me to be deprived, even if it causes me to lose some privileges, I am willing to voluntarily lay those things down, to, to leverage those things for the benefit of other people who need it. This is the love of Jesus. And I'm not just talking to white people. There is privilege that you have that you've inherited because of your skin color. If you don't agree with that or you don't understand how it works, talk to Jordan or Jessica Rice. I'm sure they would be glad to, to answer all of your questions about any of that. But, but listen, you have that because, it, but, but lots of us in this room have privilege because of our education, because of our gender, because of our wealth. And the love of Jesus is humble. Rather than leveraging all of that solely for my own personal advancement at the expense of other people, the love of Jesus says, I will leverage that in order to serve other people. Love of Jesus is humble. Lastly, I'll wrap this up quick. The love of Jesus is truthful. The love of Jesus is truthful. So many people believe that God's love means universal affirmation. Right? When I say God loves you, most people hear that to mean God loves everything about me. God accepts everything about me. Look at what happens. Verse 6, Jesus is washing disciples' feet. He gets to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You are my rabbi. You will, I will not allow you to wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, this is clutch. Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The love of Jesus is truthful. It is truthful. Jesus says, my love is reliable, my love is humble, but Peter, in order for you to fully experience this love, I have to wash you. So Peter says, then Lord, give me a bubble bath. Like, don't just wash my feet, like wash my hands, wash my head, wash everything. And Jesus is pointing Peter from physical cleansing 
to the spiritual cleansing necessary in order be, to be acceptable to God. And he's saying he's, his love is speaking the truth to Peter. Two things. One, you need to be cleansed. Everything is not sweet with you. Everything is, everything is not acceptable. You are dirty, Peter. You, you are, in gospel talk, you are a sinner who has offended the infinite holiness of God, and you deserve none of his goodness. You only deserve his punishment. And yet, the love of Jesus looks at us, acknowledges the truth, communicates the truth, and doesn't walk away from us based on the truth, says you need to be cleansed, and I am the only one who can cleanse you. And I am the only one who can cleanse you. And so listen, don't get it twisted. Like the love of Jesus is not just this universal, like flabby love that costs nothing and has no standards. This is one of the reasons why so many people get confused when, they he- when, when, when we get angry about injustice and people respond like Christians should be loving. It's because they have these false categories that love has no standards. No, the love of Jesus has standards. It looks you in your eyes and tells you the truth that you don't want to hear, that other people are not telling you, and says you are not, you are not just so lovable by God and acceptable on your own. You deserve his wrath and his punishment because you are a sinner and he hates sin. But Jesus has made a way, not just by washing your feet with some water, but by what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He did not just wrap a towel around his waist. He wrapped himself, God, in human flesh. And he didn't just get down on his knees and humble himself. He allowed himself to be hung up on a cross and be murdered, executed like a criminal. Why? Because he knew that you and I needed to be cleansed and that we could only be cleansed of our sin if he did something about it, if he did something about it. Listen, the band is getting ready to come up. I just want us to just meditate on this love of Jesus, this love that is reliable, that is, it is not based on anything in us, this love that is humble, that does not just stand over us demanding from us, but gets down in the dirt with us and cares for us, and this love that is truthful, that says, if you want to receive this love, you have to be cleansed through the gospel. Salvation is found in no one else except through Jesus. We receive that, and then, so difficult, Jesus calls us now to reflect that in our local church and to the world. And when the world sees that reliable, humble, truthful love, they will know these people rock with Jesus. Like these are the people of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your love. I thank you for your love, Father. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit in our hearts, would help us to comprehend the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, would you help us, especially in such a divisive time in our country,
and those same dividing lines run through our churches often, would you help us to reflect that kind of love in a, in a way that compels the world to look to you, Jesus, the source of that love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.